July the 4th, 1776, the Declaration of Independence was signed by 56 men who pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor on what was essentially an act of treason. So what happened July the 6th? Well, July the 6th was interesting because the Declaration of Independence You're all right, I just... was an official document. They couldn't just print copies. The law required that they make copies. And so they hired a man to make 15 copies of the original Declaration, one for each of the 13 colonies, one for Congress, and one for the library. Now, interestingly, the man they hired to make these copies spoke no English at all. He was a uh, German immigrant who had beautiful handwriting, uh, and so he made his money copying official records. And so when you see a copy of the Declaration of Independence, such as, such as at Independence Hall, and now they have a copy of the Library of Congress, and the, city of Mass or the state of Massachusetts has their copy back because the copy that was sent to the state of Massachusetts was found in an attic in Georgia. I'm not sure how it got there, but they were able to authenticate it. So now the state of Massachusetts has a copy of the Declaration of Independence in their uh, governor's mansion rights of lobby. Now, these copies, as I said, were written out in hand uh, by a man who spoke no English at all. Well, today we're going to take a look at, I'm calling this cornerstone, the Rubenock Age and Landmarks. It is important that we celebrate July the 4th. More and more people are forgetting what it was that drove the founders of this country. The argument now is that we are not a Christian nation and never have been. I hope by the end of this you will realize that that statement is simply not true. We are going to look at a number of the founding documents, and then we're going to look at a number of addresses, inaugural addresses by various presidents. <clears throat> I have a document that gives me every inaugural address from every president up to George W. Bush. And if you search for God, Lord God, Providence, or His will, every president mentioned God at some point or another in their address. George Washington has the largest numbers of mentioned, followed by uh, William Henry Harrison. You probably know George Washington, you may or may not know William Henry Harrison, but you'll find out who he is. Now, before we get there, though, we want to kind of get some foundational work about why we should talk about this and what the Founding Fathers, the Declaration of Independence, and the Constitution have to do with the Bible, uh, first like this. Well, the Bible speaks much about landmarks and markers. We're going to be in the book of Joshua, chapter 4. Joshua and the people have entered into the Promised Land. They are in the process of capturing the land that God had promised them. And in Joshua chapter 4, we read, It came to pass when all the people had completely crossed over the Jordan, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Take for yourselves twelve men from the people, one man from every tribe, and command them, saying, Take for yourselves twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, and carry them with you, and leave them in the lodging place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve, and he appointed for the 
Joshua said, Cross over before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan. Each one of you take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of Israel. Not a small stone, not a tiny, big rock. That this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall answer them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord when it crossed over Jordan and the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones shall be for a memorial to the children of Israel forever. And the children of Israel did so, just as Joshua commanded, and took up twelve stones from the midst of the Jordan, as the Lord had spoken to Joshua, according to the number of tribes of Israel, carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down. Then Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests before the ark stood, and they are there to this day. It's important. Cornerstones, remembrances, memorials require us to go back to the purpose of the founding. Joshua wanted these 12 stones to remind the people of Israel that their nation had begun by a miraculous act. They needed to cross the Jordan River. The Jordan was swollen. God pulls the water back. The army crosses and in doing so, God says, put these 12 stones up to remind people. We need to stop and think and remember what it is that our purpose is. Joshua made the nation take the stones, he planted them, he told them, remember God's power and providence. When they saw these stones, the people were to remember that it was God who had established the nation. Next slide. Yeah, when people come into the land, he also tells them, I'm going to divide the, this land up for the various tribes, and they were to mark the boundaries of the land. Turn with me, uh, and by the way, I want to apologize to you soon before we get started. We're going to be doing a lot of Bible jumping today. I don't usually do that, uh, but the nature of the topic is sort of part of Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke Deuteronomy, chapter 19, verse 14. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. You shall not remove your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set, in your inheritance, which you will inherit in the land the Lord is giving you to possess. Now, the book of Deuteronomy comes before Joshua, so God is telling them, before they get in the land, I'm going to divide the land up. I'm going to put borders there, and you're not to move those. The land that I'm dividing up is my inheritance to you. Don't change those lines. You shall not remove the landmarks. Go back to the slide. And this is the division of the land. Uh, go to the next slide. And this is the land. Judah, Reuben, Gad, Aphrodite, Manasseh, Dan, Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, Zebulon, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh. That's the land which God divided it up. Now, uh, Dan is interesting, it's mountainous. Well, Dan, Ephraim, they're mountainous areas. Notice that they have the Philistines, the Phoenicians, the Moabites, the Edomites. They're surrounded by unfriendly people. And then God put them there and said, This is your land in perpetuity because where Israel is is crossroads. All the great nations would eventually come through there. And so God put God's people in a place where the word of the Lord would stretch out all civilization. He 
puts us where we are for the same purpose. The Galilean church is here to spread the word through their own. Next slide. So, we are to remember where we came from. We're to remember what purpose of the United States was. We're to tell that story to others. Now, what is the refrain of the book of Kings? First and second Kings, they walked in the ways of Jeroboam. Jeroboam was a bad king. He sat in Manila and he led the nation astray. They stopped following after the Lord God. Now, what did God do? He punished them with the Assyrians. He punished them with the Babylonians. So, the question is, what is the story of the United States? Are we a Christian nation? What was the purpose of the founding? Well, that's what we're looking at today. It's a fascinating story that has been much maligned, much distorted in recent years. Now, why are we doing this? Are we doing it because God tells us to turn your Bibles to the book of Proverbs, chapter 22, and verse 28. Proverbs 22, 28 says, Do not remove the ancient landmark which your fathers have set. Proverbs 23, 10. Do not remove the ancient landmark, nor enter the field of the fathers. Don't change those boundaries. Don't take advantage of the poor meeting. Job gives us the same idea from a different angle. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, so back two books. Job 24.2. Listen carefully. I love this area. Thank you. Some remove these landmarks. They seize flocks violently and feed on them. It's not just the removal of landmarks. It's the criminal taking of stuff that doesn't belong to you that follows. So the Bible says that we're to remember these landmarks. We're to remember those building blocks that made us who we are. The first cornerstone of the American experience is Christopher Columbus. Now, 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Most people are completely unaware that Christopher Columbus was doing this, doing his travels as a way to carry out the Gospels. In his diaries on his first trip, he says this, These natives should be good servants and intelligent. For I observed they quickly took in what was said to them. I believe they would easily be made Christians, as it appeared to me they had no religion. So his first concern for the natives was that they be Christians. He later, on his second trip, he continues by saying, They are people who are guileless, unwarlike. Many women go as naked as when their mothers bore them. I hold most serene princes, if devout religious persons were here, Knowing the language, they would all turn Christian. That was Columbus's goal. In fact, Columbus was very upset when others in his, in his uh, voyages tried to make slaves out of the Indians, and he went to the Pope, and the Pope issued a papal decree saying that the Native Americans were not to be enslaved. Of course, we know how that turned out, but that's a different story. So Christopher Columbus... First, well, not the first over here, but the, but the most significant of whom we know, his purpose was evangelism. Once he realized that these tribes needed it, on his second third voyages, he brought missionaries to evangelize these natives that he was encountering. We forget that. When he first set eyes on the new world, he said, Providence, we praise our journey has 
paid dividends. And then as he talks, and when he brought these Indians back, he brought several back with him to Spain and introduced them, and several of the Indians he brought back did become converted, and when they came back to the New World with him, they became evangelists to their own people. So that's Christopher Columbus, an evangelist with three ships. So who are our founding colonists? Well, they were Puritans. Now the Puritans, if you look at the U.S. history book at East Fairmont High, it tells you that the Puritans were people escaping political persecution. That's it. They were facing political persecution, but the Puritans were also Christians who had looked at the Church of England, looked at the Catholic Church, and said there's something fundamentally wrong with religion in England. We want to purify it. They first tried to purify the religion. They were, they were a back to the, we call them back to the Bible call. They wanted to do away with what we now call the smells and the bells. Sorry, right? And get back to a Bible-based religion. The Bible says this, we want this church order, we want these doctrines. And the problem was, of course, the Church of England said, no, in pretty violent and pretty abusive ways. And so the Puritans said, well, let's go to the New World, found colonies. Now, the purpose was to create colonies here in a Christian tradition that would purify the Christian religion so that they could send missionaries back to Europe to fix the problem of the church in Europe. To the Puritans, the corruption in the church, the corruption in government were all of a piece. Because we had abandoned pure religion, we cannot have pure government. Now, out of the Puritans came the pilgrims. And I was just saying that the pilgrim was I and the wandering. The pilgrims were, they were not Puritans themselves, but they were of that sect. And as they come over, they established the Mayflower Compact, which says this, In the name of God, amen. We whose names are underwritten, the loyal subjects of our dread sovereign, Lord King James, King James Bible, King James, by the grace of God, of Great Britain, France, Ireland, King, defender of the faith, having undertaken for the glory of God an advancement of the Christian faith and the honor of our king and country, plant a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia, do by these prisons solemnly and mutually in the presence of God and one another, covenant and combine into a civil body policy for our better ordering and preservation. So, the Mayflower Compact is considered the first constitution in the United States. And what was its purpose? Glory to God, furtherance of the Christian faith. So, our very first founding document, the Mayflower Compact, explicitly says we're coming to the New World to advance Christianity. Uh, James Oglethorpe of Georgia. And you may have heard that Georgia started as a, uh, as a uh, criminal colony, a prison colony. That the, the, uh, the Crown fell on his prisoners, loaded on boats in Georgia. That's not true. Uh, it was actually worse. The, the Georgia colony was founded by middle managers. There were people who understood basic business and how to get things running. James Oglethorpe was their leader. Oglethorpe said, when we found the colony of Georgia, we are not going to have free things. We're not going to have slaves. We're not going to have booze. And we're not going to have coffee. If anything about Georgia history, you know that didn't last very long either. Oglethorpe founded Georgia in 1733 as a 
demonstration of how a Christian colony should work. He established it specifically to demonstrate why South Carolina was such a good South Carolina had already been established. They had gotten slaves the whole nine months, gotten slaves in the Oglethorpe saw that South Carolina was having problems, and he said they're having problems because they're not a Christian community. When they landed in Savannah, the first thing they built was a church. Before they built their home, before they built the community center, they built a church. That was Oglethorpe's plan. In 1736, Oglethorpe had to go back to England to report how things were going, and while he was gone, his vice lieutenant got slaves and started planting cotton. When Oglethorpe got back, he saw what Savannah had become. He literally walked out of the city, wiped the dust off his feet, and went farther south and established another colony. Oglethorpe was a man of great faith. He believed that God would prosper the colony as long as they stood true to the war. Now, the problem was, in 1733, the southern United States, or the southern colonies, were going through a drought. Not much was growing, and people were saying, oh, what are wrong? Oglethorpe was saying, be true to God and be the ground. Well, they never gave him that chance, and Georgia's history was pretty well set. Uh, Maryland, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, all of these established by Christians with the purpose of evangelizing the Indians around them, but also evangelizing the other colonists. So, our early colonies had in their very founding the idea that it was essential to carry the gospel of Christ. The next slide. The 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence, most of them were Christians. John Adams was an elder in his church. Uh, Governor Morris, Governor was his first name, Morris was his last name. I've never found the source of that. Governor Morris wrote Christian tracts. Governor Morris was elected to the first Congress after the Constitution was adopted, and he pushed through a bill creating the American Bible Society. The second thing printed off the uh, American, the government-run printing press were Bibles. Congress authorized Bibles to be printed to be distributed to public schools throughout the country. That was our family. Of these 56 signers, most of them were involved in church. Many of them had written commentaries on the Bible. Now we've got Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson's a deist, right? Well, not so fast. When Jefferson was accused of being a deist, his answer was, I am a Christian. In the only sense Christ ever intended, fully human to be his principles above all others. Now today, we wouldn't consider that a statement of faith, but Jefferson is answering in direct response to the challenge of being a deist. I'm not a deist. I'm a Christian in that I'm connected to Christ's doctrines above all others. I'm, I'm not sure we can call Jefferson a Christian in the sense that we think. But if you go to Monticello, they've got Jefferson's Bible, his copy of the Quran, his copy of the Bhagavad Gita, and his copy of other works. And you can see Jefferson was a scholar and a student of all religions, and he concluded that the only document that contained truths for human living was the Bible. That was his conclusion after years of study. Initially, when he started that, when he was a young man, he ran across the Quran while he was in college, and he thought it was pretty nifty, but he said the more he got into it, the more flaws and weaknesses he had. So these are the men that signed the Declaration of Independence. What does the Declaration say? Sorry about that. What does the Declaration say? It says, when the course of human invention becomes necessary for one body to sever the bonds 
It is important that they lay their cause before the world. Well, actually, it's not. Normally, when you wanted to sever the bonds of another country, you just went to war. The framers believed it was important to lay out the justness of their cause. First time they've ever been done. We hold these truths to be self-evident, unnecessary of proof, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Is that talking about that in Sunday school? Unalienable means these rights are so inherent in the human condition that you cannot divorce them from yourself, nor can any government justly deny you. Where did they get those ideas? They got them from Paul. They got them from the Old Testament. And when you look at the sources of Jefferson's ideas with that, you find that the idea of, of them were in authors like David Hume, a Scottish philosopher, who laid out some of these ideas and spoke clearly how they are in, in definitely written Thomas Hobbes. Hobbes is a wonderful political philosopher. My favorite phrase from Hobbes, actually everybody's favorite phrase, is that in the state of nature, without government, life is nasty, mean, solitary, British, and short. <clears throat> it is a war of every man against every man. Hobbes didn't think much of human beings. But if you read the fullness of his work, the last half of his book, which is called Leviathan, which also tells you what he thinks of government, is he's talking about the Christian commonwealth and why the Christian commonwealth is superior to any other form of government. These are the people that the founders and the writers of the Declaration drew upon for their philosophy. Our first president, George Washington, it is impossible to, 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 to speak to the debt that we owe Washington. At the end of his military career, Washington was the most popular man in the United States. He could have walked into the Continental Congress and said, declare me king, and they would have. What did he do? He resigned. He said, I thank you for the service, but will not. In his first inaugural address, Ah, uh, sorry, this is his last verse. I consider it an indispensable duty to close this last solemn act in my official life by commending the interest of our dearest country to the protection of Almighty God and those who have the superintendence of them by His holy people. Washington believed the government service was an obligation to God and that it must be handled as such. When Washington was elected as president, he established the fundamental rules for civil service. To be chosen to serve in the federal government, you had to be a man of upstanding character. You did have to be a man. Upstanding character meant that you had to have three letters of reference. Two of them had to be from ministers of the gospel. That was a requirement for government service. Did people challenge him? Yes. His Secretary of State, Jefferson, said, doesn't that violate the Constitution? And Washington said, it's the only way to find him. Next. James John Adams. Adams is the second president of the United States. Most people get Jefferson and Adams backwards. Adams won the election, um, and he and Jefferson had a falling out. By the way, Jefferson and Adams died on the same day. Jefferson and Adams had a falling out during the constitutional period where they didn't really like each other. Both of them died July the 4th, 1820, when Adams died. His last words were, thank God Jefferson lives. Three hours later, Jefferson died. A piece of completely useless trivia. Of our five first presidents, three of them died on July the 4th. Jefferson, Adams, and his brother. 
Monroe died 15 years later. But I, said, I don't know tell what that means, but it's just an interesting piece of completely useful story. John Adams, our second president. Adams was a Congregationalist uh, from the Northeast, very committed to the church, very committed to Christ, pushed through uh, the American Bible Society. He wanted to send missionaries to the far, far, far western United States, Nashville. That, by the way, was the far west, uh, the eastern part of the Ohio River. And so this is what he says. If a veneration for the religion of a people who profess and call themselves Christians and a fixed resolution to consider a decent respect for Christianity among the best recommendations for public service can enable me in any degree to comply with your wishes, it shall be my strenuous endeavor with this occasion's injunction of the 2000 shall not be written. That's all fancy words. What he is saying is, if it is Christianity that makes us good public servants, and the implication is it is, I will endeavor to all that I am to be a good Christian leader. That's what he's saying. It's the first time that a president, in, and this is his inaugural address. Now, keep in mind that it was not until radio came about that presidents actually delivered their inaugural address before Congress. Previous to that, they simply wrote it out, sent it over to Congress, and the Speaker of the House ordered the Sergeant at Arms to read the thing, and then it was sent over to the Senate. Work and then it was published. So Adams never gave this speech, but it's widely circulated. And look what he says. If a veneration, a respect for the religion of a people who profess and call themselves Christian, are we a Christian nation? John Adams says, yeah, we are. And as a public servant, I am required to respect that religion. If a veneration for Christianity and a fixed resolution to consider a decent respect of Christianity among the recommendations for public service. In other words, if I respect the religion that people have, Christianity, and if I believe that Christianity is the single best recommendation for public service, then I will enable, that will enable me to comply with your wishes. It shall be my endeavor. That's John Adams. Right there, our second president, stating clearly we are a Christian nation. Moreover, I am a Christian and I will carry out my office to the best that I can. Now, Adams had some difficulties, had some problems with his administration, but that's what he says. Later on, he says, with this great example of Christ before me, with this sense and spirit, faith and honor, duty and interest of those same American people pledged to support the Constitution of the United States, I entertain no doubt of its continuance and its energy, and my mind is prepared without hesitation to lay myself under the most solemn obligations to support Adams believed that religion made us good servants, and with this example of Christ before me, with that sense of spirit, faith and honor, I endeavor to carry out these jobs. Adams thought we were a Christian nation. Thomas Jefferson. Uh, this is another one. Jefferson could never say it in a few words. Jefferson believed that there was no point using a few words in the name of the But follow me here. I shall need the favor of that being in whose hands we are, 
who led our fathers as Israel of old from their native land, planted them in a country flowing of all the necessaries and comforts of life, who has covered our infancy with his providence, our riper years with his wisdom and power, to whose goodness I ask you to join in supplications with me, that he will enlighten the mind of your servants, God, by the servants he means Congress, guide their counsels, prosper their measures, and whatever they do shall result in your good, shall secure to you peace, friendship, and approbation of all nations. The argument is that Jefferson was a heist and that he did not believe in the God of the Bible. This quote, I think, answers that. The favor of that being in whose hands we are to let our fathers as Israel uphold. Pretty clear who is talking about. And the example of the Exodus that coming in. That's an example that only a Christian speaker could talk about. It is not one that somebody who's, who's following the Quran could actually say. Right? So, Jefferson makes it clear that he is talking about the Christian law. Now, Suppose that he is speaking what we in political science terms call strategically rather than sincerely. Strategically means he's saying what you want him to hear. Sincerely means he's saying what he believes. Suppose that Jefferson is speaking strategically and he doesn't actually believe in this God. It's irrelevant because, again, this is his inaugural address and he is clearly, if he is speaking strategically, he is clearly stating what the American people believe. Now let's take a look at what he says here. Israel of all, they leave city of Ur, of the Chaldeans, they make their trip up, they come to the promised land, they go to Egypt, they come back, that's the trip he's talking about. Planted them in a country flowing with all necessaries and comforts of life, flows with milk and honey. Covered our infancy with his providence. And what's he talking about? He's talking about Tycon Road. Battle of Tycon Road. America's about to be beaten. A storm comes in. British have to retreat. Americans are able to regroup. They win the day. He's talking about uh, other battles where God clearly intervened. He's talking about <coughs> Washington being able to pull his troops back into Fort Necessity. Something that had never been done. So that's what he's talking about. In our infancy, God's providence carries. Our riper years, he has given us wisdom and power. And to this God's goodness, I ask you to join in prayer with me, that he will enlighten the minds of your servants, me, that he will enlighten me, that he will enlighten Congress to make good decisions, that whatever they do shall result in your good, shall secure to you peace, friendship, and approval of all nations. Now, if we assume that Jefferson didn't actually believe that, it is clear that he believed that we as Americans believe that God is proper, that God established us, that God is watching over us. So again, did Jefferson believe the United States is a Christian nation? Well, yeah. Now what does he say? He says this providence will join us, and he wants providence to guide the minds of Congress. No. <laughs> William Henry Harrison. Now, uh, first elected in 1840, served a very short time. William Henry Harrison, his campaign slogan was Tippecanoe and Tyler II. Not a great slogan, but uh, he was an Indian fighter in the West. 
Uh, he was a friend of a president, two presidents earlier, Andrew Jackson. Well, friendly, I guess is what we can say. Jackson was kind of a rough guy to get to know. Harrison was elected in 1840. He was 68 years old. He wanted to demonstrate he was full of vim and vigor and vitality. And so he gave his first address to Congress in his shirt sleeves, caught pneumonia, and died shortly thereafter. Probably not the smartest thing the president has ever done. Uh, the president that followed him was his vice president, a man by the name of John Tyler. Uh, Tyler created such a brouhaha in acting as president because the Constitution wasn't clear as to whether the vice president was president or just served as president. And Tyler said, well, I'm president. He vetoed a bunch of stuff, and he signed some legislation. He issued executive orders. That's kind of familiar. <laughs> the upshot was an amendment to the Constitution was clarified that the vice president is president, not just serving. Uh, Tyler was so unpopular by the end of his term that not only did he not run for uh, office, he was, his party simply didn't allow him. Other interesting thing about John Tyler, John Tyler was not the same party as William Henry Harrison. He just acted like he was. And if you're a conspiracy theorist, there's all sorts of conspiracies that, that fly up around that. William Henry Harrison, however, an interesting man. He was part of the Bible Society. While he was fighting the Indians, he actually treated them much better than Andrew Jackson and many of the other uh, generals. And he had Bibles and tracts with him. <clears throat> William Henry Harrison says this, I deem the present occasion sufficiently important and solemn to justify me in expressing to my fellow citizens a profound reverence for the Christian religion, a thorough conviction that sound morals, religious liberty, and a just sense of religious responsibility are essentially connected with all true and lasting happiness. To that good being who has blessed us by the gifts of civil and religious freedom, who watched over and prospered the labors of our fathers, and has hitherto preserved to us institutions far exceeding in excellence those of any other people, let us unite in fervently commending every interest of our beloved country in all future time. A profound reverence for the Christian religion, a thorough conviction of sound morals, religious liberty, and a sense of religious responsibility are all connected. In other words, you can't have sound morals, you can't have liberty without religious responsibility. Put all those things together, we get lasting happiness. And that good being who has blessed us by the gifts of civil freedom and religious freedom. We didn't do it on our own. It wasn't our own work. God blessed us with that. Who watched over and prospered the labor of our fathers and has in the past preserved to us institutions far exceeding in excellence those of any other people. Our Congress, our Senate, our President, our Supreme Court, our lesser far exceed any other institutions anywhere else in the world. What is fascinating to me about this quote is the current administration have, would not accept that statement that our institutions far exceed all other institutions. It is hard to imagine how far we have come from this statement Far exceeding those. Let us in, unite 
in commending every interest of our beloved country in all future time. Amen. William Henry Harrison was saying, reverence for Christian religion leads us to Christian responsibilities. These are the words of the inaugural addresses of various of our presidents. William Henry Harrison, as I said, he didn't serve long, uh, but had had a long career in American military and political history. Um, and his election to the presidency, he hadn't intended to serve more than one term anyway, was the capstone to a long and illustrious career. The modern-day equivalent of William Henry Harrison is George H.W. Bush, who in his inaugural address, George H.W. Bush quoted Micah, I'm sorry to do this to you soon, Micah 6 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. It's one of the last things in his personal address that George H. W. Bush quoted. Abraham Lincoln, another one that we, we wonder about as Christian, says in his inaugural address, If it were admitted that you who are dissatisfied hold the right side in the dispute, there still is no single good reason for action, intelligence, patriotism, Christianity, and a firm reliance on him who has never yet forsaken his favorite land, are still competent to adjust in the best way all our present difficulties. We're talking about the slavery issue. When Lincoln was elected, the point when the uh, Electoral College declared Lincoln the winner, Virginia and South Carolina immediately signed articles of secession. That's who Lincoln is talking to. If it were admitted that you who are dissatisfied hold the right of the dispute, if you who are succeeding are right in this dispute, there is no single good reason for precipitous action, intelligence, patriotism, Christianity, and a firm reliance on him who has never yet forsaken this land are still competent to adjust in the best way all our present difficulties. What does Lincoln say? We are Christians. He said we're a Christian nation. And if we are a Christian nation, we can find a path to resolve this That's Abraham Lincoln. Uh, Bill O'Reilly's book, Killing Lincoln, talks somewhat about Lincoln's Christian faith. And it kind of comes down, he's, he's not sure. Uh, the earliest biography of Abraham Lincoln in 1892 declared clearly that Abraham Lincoln was in fact a Christian. And when you read his words, Lincoln, like Jefferson, very complicated in his philosophy and in his ideals. Unlike Jefferson, Lincoln never really wavered from the value of that Christian faith. And what he's saying here is, if we are Christians, if we are a Christian nation, we can solve this issue. Did Lincoln believe we were a Christian nation? Yeah. William Henry Harrison? Undoubtedly. Thomas Jefferson? Unquestionably. John Adams? Absolutely. George Washington? He's the one that started that line of thought. John Kennedy. Finally, whether you are citizens of America or citizens of the world, ask of us the same high standards of strength and sacrifice which we ask of you. With a good conscience, our only sure reward, with history, the final judge of our deeds, let us go forth to lead the land we love, 
asking his blessing and his help, but knowing that here on earth, God's work must truly be our own. Kennedy is interesting. He quotes five different passages from the Bible in his inaugural address. He quotes Isaiah. He also quotes Micah. He quotes the Psalms. We don't think of Kennedy as a great spiritual leader, but in his inaugural address, he spoke firmly about God and God's will. In his discussions about foreign policy, what he was going to do in the face of communism, people forget that John F. Kennedy was an ardent anti-communist. He talked about communism and Western tradition being a conflict between God and the devil. He believed that there was a great moral conflict. Now, Kennedy had his problems, many, many of them, but you must understand that Kennedy was believing. It is interesting, when you look for references to God, it was after Kennedy's administration. Johnson only referred to God in, in two places. One was with the help of God. At the very end, he said, so help me God. And at the end, he said, God has led us this far. Nothing else in the middle of the speech. Reagan refers to it in a, a number of places. Uh, Carter, of course, was one of the few Baptists who have served. George H.W. Bush. And so there is much to do. Tomorrow the work begins. I do not mistrust the future. I do not fear what is ahead. Our problems are large, but our heart is larger. Our challenges are great, but our will is greater. And if our flaws are endless, God's love is truly boundless. George H.W. Bush. Man couldn't deliver a speech like Ronald Reagan at all, but we actually read the words, the things that he has to say. And George H.W. Bush never spoke publicly about his faith, and he got him in trouble. But as you read his writings, as you look at his letters, as you look at the stuff that he recently published, he is a man of deep, abiding faith. People forget George H.W. Bush served in World War II, shot down, at sea, rescued, spent time getting back. Then he goes into public service, serves in public service his whole life. Presidency, like William Henry Harrison, capstone of his career. Fortunately, when he gave his inaugural address, he was indoors in Mark Hope. But, other than that, the two very similar. George H.W. Bush believed, is a believer. And he believed we are a Christian nation. So what do we learn from this? If we look at inaugural addresses, the word God, the word God is mentioned 94 different times in the inaugural addresses. Three different administrations quote Micah 6a. What does God require of us? Love mercy, do justly, walk humbly. Proverbs. Most uh, providence is quoted. Uh, the word providence is used 23 times. The most cited books are from the prophets, calling a nation to repentance, calling a nation to consider their responsibility. These are the inaugural addresses. These are the people who are stated in a public way what they believe the is. It's a Christian nation. It's a nation that is unique in all of the world. It's a nation that exists under the providence of God. It is a nation whose purpose is to bring those blessings 
to the rest of the world. Turn in your hymn books to 601. You're familiar with the uh, first verse, most everybody is. Well, say, can you see by the dawn's early light what so proudly we hail at the twilight's last gleaming? He's talking about the flag. Whose broad stripes and bright stars through the perilous fight o'er the ramparts we watched will so gallantly streaming. Rockets red glare, bombs bursting in air, they threw through the night. That our flag was still there. For say does that star spangled banner yet wave or the land of the free and the home of the brave. Nobody is familiar with the second verse. Oh, thus be it ever when free men shall stand between their loved home and war's desolation. Blessed with victory and peace, may the heaven rescued land praise the power that hath made and preserved us a nation. Then conquer we must when our cause it is just. And this be our motto, in God is our trust. And the star spangled banner and triumph shall make all the men free and home. The power that preserved us, and this be our motto, in God <coughs> is our trust. Now, turn also with me to 600. America beautiful. Oh, beautiful verse two. Oh, I don't. Oh, have sorry, America the beautiful. I don't know that I have it. Maybe I do. Thank you. And second verse. Oh, beautiful for pilgrims be, whose stern and passion stress a thoroughfare. For freedom beat across the wilderness. America, God, mend thine every flaw. Remember, uh, I think it was uh, Bush. Mend, mend thy every flaw. Confirm thy soul in self control. Liberty and law. Verse 4. <coughs> o beautiful for a patriot dream, see beyond the years, thine alabaster cities gleam, undimmed by human tears. And that's a direct reference that what we are creating in the United States is a city on a hill, a place where other nations can look and say, this is how Christians do it, this is what Christians do. Thine alabaster cities gleam, undimmed by human tears. America, America. God shed his grace on the and crown your good with the brotherhood of the shining sea. The Bible tells us, remove not the ancient landmarks. Remember where we are from. Remember who we are and whose we are. Follow after Josiah. Follow after David. Turn with me in your Bible to 2 Kings. 23, 25. And this will be the last one we're going to see. 2 Kings 23, 25. Good as a person joining me, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, versus St. Kings. Joshua, 
2325. I suppose I should say tap and wrap or look in your book. Now, before him, Josiah, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his might, according to the law of Moses, nor after him did any arise like him. Think about that. Josiah, the king, young man when he takes the throne, rules after him, the southern kingdoms will go into captivity. Before him, there was no king like him. Now, where's some of the kings came before? Solomon. Solomon, not like Josiah. David, not like Josiah. That's a kind. Not like Josiah. King Uriah, not like Josiah. Before Josiah, there was none who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind. Or the same, serve the Lord with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. <clears throat> Who did, according to all the law of Moses. And Josiah wasn't familiar with it. The law was brought to him. He read it over. He said, we can do this now. And he did it. And the Bible indicates that by Josiah's faithfulness, 50 more years were added to the life of the nation of Judah. Nor after him did any arise like him. No king before Josiah. No king after him. Why? Because he followed God's law and committed himself to the Lord. The first thing a king had to do when he was anointed king was write out by hand a copy of the law. That means that he had to sit down and write out that by hand. That's a lot. It was his first duty. He was to be intimately aware of the law. Now, we don't require that of precedence. There's some issue as to whether we even could. But, we as Christians need to consider the men and women we put into office. Are they, as Washington would say, men and women of good character? Are they, as William Henry Harrison says, devoted to the Christian religion? Are they, as John Adams says, Christians in faithful practice? And if they're not, whose fault is it? We are a nation established in liberties and ideas that were founded on principles and practices of the Bible. With the Declaration of Independence, as we are imbued with inalienable rights and one mutual equity and the pursuit of happiness. They understood those as Christian terms. The pursuit of happiness wasn't anything we wanted. It wasn't the pursuit of drugs. It wasn't the pursuit of pornography. It wasn't the pursuit of stuff on the internet. It was the pursuit of things that make us truly happy. The things that serve God and serve Him. They understood. They didn't have to say it because it was understood. So, remove not the ancient landmarks. On this holiday season, we need to recall who we are. Were we founded as a Christian nation? Our presidents believed that we were. Our colonial founders believed that we were. Modern presidents have said that we were. That's who we are. When you encounter somebody who says we were not founded as a Christian nation, you can say, hey, William Henry Harrison said we were. They'll say, who? And then you can 
tell by William Henry Harrison. You can tell them John Adams. You can tell them Thomas Jefferson. You can tell them Abraham Lincoln. Said Hard to argue with the guys whose job it was to run the country. When we look at these ancient cornerstones, when we look at whose we are, we need to teach this to our children. We need to defend the truth that America's blessings came from a people committed to the Bible. And we need to defend our faith. Christianity is under attack from all sorts of angles. We as Christians have an obligation to say, I would follow God rather than man. What will our legacy be? The young people who are upstairs with Stephanie in children's church. That's our legacy. We have Harris, a remarkable young woman, whose growth in Christ the last few years has been astonishing. And that growing in Christ. Emily, who in the last year and a half has really started to ministry. We are responsible for the training and upbringing of these children so that when they become future leaders. Uh, Ray, did you count me just one there? Six? So six children or so. Five kids and two of them. So you have those five kids, one of them is going to serve on city council, probably. One of them will probably serve on county commission. What do you want them to do as city council? Do you want them to pursue policies that glorify God or policies that promote politics? The decision they made at that time, 15, 20 years ago, are the decisions we have made. How do we do that? Remind them of who we are and what it means to be a Christian nation. And that means understanding our faith in and of ourselves. It means reminding ourselves and our children that God is the Lord, that Christ is who we claim to be. Whatever they're taught in school, whatever they're taught out in the culture, no. There is a truth, and that truth must be.